Today on the Zabecast, if you like the U.S. Open harder than IKEA instructions in Swedish, well, you got your wish. But will you like it when all the stars are home this weekend? Jim Cryans, author of The Making of Bull Durham, will join us and tell us why the movie almost never got made. All that plus a vigorous defense of daylight savings. If you've got 45 minutes to kill, then buckle up and let's go! Friday, June 15, 2018. Thank you for downloading. I appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed the weekend, everybody. Dads and grads this weekend. Dads and grads. So dads and grads weekend, everybody. It's kind of cheesy there. I just had my older daughter graduate from high school. Catherine, the 19 years flies by, 18, 19 years, whatever it is, flies by in a rush. And the younger one, who is now 16, She'll be through as well in a couple of years. Where does the time go? Anyway, hope you have a good weekend. I uh, hope the U.S. Open is compelling come Saturday and Sunday. Certainly round one was sadistic. With the wind blowing the way it was, with the greens as fast and as bumpy as they were, uh, with Tiger Woods and others struggling, we'll see how much everyone likes it this weekend. Dustin Johnson is clearly further establishing his grip as the world's number one. He is not just a long-armed, long-hitting, monotoned freak of nature. Uh, you know, I about hit that as hard as I could there. So, you know, I played good. Uh, you know, hit some nine irons in there. Uh, he's obviously the favorite this weekend to win it all, no matter what... Uh, no matter what he does today, I think he's going to be in the mix come Saturday and Sunday. As for all the other guys, I mean, look at look at the scores in round one. And, I mean, if this is what you like, it, you can't have it both ways, by the way. If anyone says, well, I love it hard. Last year's U.S. Open at Aaron Hills was boring because Brooks Kepka ran away with it and hid. Okay, well, you know, tough scoring has led a, lo- a number of guys including Rory, Jason Day, Jordan Spieth, Phil Mickelson, um, Rory McIlroy to be on the wrong side of the cut line, and Tiger Woods on the wrong side of the cut line. So you tell me if you really love the U.S. Open if all of those names are gone come the weekend. Now, what's my solution? I, I, I don't have a solution. As uh, Al Swearingen once said famously in Deadwood, to uh, to woo the uh, the chief of the Chinese contingent in Deadwood, not every problem has a bleeping solution. Because he was coming to him to complain about something. I've got to find that bite. It's really not on the internet. Don't say, well, Google it or YouTube it. It's on there, I'm sure. No, not everyone is. So i got to go dig back into my DVDs. I don't have a solution. Although I did float on my show in D.C. on Thursday. I said, what if we gave the top 20 ranked players in the world, a bye to the weekend. And we let them uh, at least get to the weekend, you know, maybe put them in the middle of the pack of those who made the cut. Immediately, people started booing me from their own cars and listening to the radio. What? <laughs> a bye to the weekend? Really? Really? Okay. I just say, I just say, you know, if there is a solution, which I don't think there is, 
that would be it. Before we get to Jim Crines, and I had a very good chat with him uh, last night about the making of the movie Bull Durham, which is in my pantheon of all-time great movies, sports movies, all movies really, not just sports. Before we get to that, just a couple of news items. Looks like Kellen Winslow is in a tight spot right now. Tight spot. In fact, if the allegations against him are true, then he is an absolute scumbag who should rot the rest of his life in prison. If the allegations are as bad as they seem, and we don't have any details on this yet, then move over Darren Sharper. Hold my beer, because I'm worse. Now, the counts against him, against uh, you know uh, Kellen Winslow Jr., who once famously said, I'm a soldier when he was in high school, or in college at Miami. I'm a soldier. No, no, you're just a, a kid whose dad was in the NFL and is in the Hall of Fame, and you're good at sports, you're good at football, but you've had every advantage growing up, so don't kid yourself. I'm a soldier. The fuck is that? Nine counts uh, against Kellen Winslow Jr., including two counts of rape, two counts of kidnapping with intent to rape, burglary, sodomy, a bunch of other stuff on down the list. I'll wait to hear more details on this to give further comment, but it, it looks really bad right now. Of course, not everyone waits until there's further details to jump to conclusions or make bold proclamations. In fact, based on Kellen Winslow Jr.'s agent or business manager or representative, he claimed that his client, Kellen, was just uh, shopping, you know, house shopping, and he was arrested. And so a number of people, including Jamel Hill, was quick to tweet out, well, put that on the list of things you can't do while black without getting harassed by the police. Whoops. Of course, Jamel Hill has now offered a full and complete apology and has said she will do better to wait till for... <laughs> See, I guess you. She didn't say that. No, she just doubled down saying, okay, if you're going to celebrate the one time they got it right, that doesn't mean anything about all the other times that black people have been harassed doing nothing wrong whatsoever, which completely misses the point. The, the, the point is not that one negates the other or, or makes up for the other. The point is you got to wait for a little more official word on something than just the agent for the player says he wasn't doing anything wrong. While we're on the subject of crime and sports, ooh, this is a bad one. University of Kentucky football player, Marcus Walker was arrested at 4.40 a.m. on May 24th in Lexington, Kentucky on drug trafficking charges as police found over $100,000 in his possession in his car, plus a money-counting machine, plus, uh, let's see, how much? Uh, five, 52 grams of cocaine and more than five pounds of marijuana. This during a search of his apartment. Uh, they found the cocaine in a kitchen cabinet. I would have never guessed that it was there. What a great hiding spot. And they found the marijuana throughout the house, including in a water heater closet, in a counter next to the stove, under a bed, and in a backpack. So, in other words, it was all over the place. I just think we should pay these kids. You know, these these sweet kids who are chemical engineering you know, majors, and they just want to get through college playing collegiate sports, it's so unfair they don't get paid money. 
I know you're going to criticize me for missing the point and saying, that's totally, you're just using one example. I know, the vast majority of Division One players uh, are not, you know, full-time aggressive drug dealers, but some are. And boy, wouldn't that be embarrassing and or galling and or, I don't know what the word is, if you had to be paying somebody like Marcus Walker to play football for Kentucky, not very good at football, and then you found out that that pay wasn't enough and he was dealing drugs on a massive scale on the side. Speaking of the collegiate deal, which is now going to be uh, put under the microscope by LeBron James and his movie company, who says that, by the way, can you hear the dogs in the background? I don't know if you can hear that or not. I have uh, in-laws in town, so we've got three dogs in the house now, and it's just mayhem. Anyway, uh, <laughs> speaking of the high school deal and you know the so-called, uh, some people believe it's just totally morally wrong the NCAA would make millions of dollars and the student-athletes would get basically nothing. Can't say they're getting nothing because they actually get a scholarship, room and board, and they get a stipend of cash, upwards of $5,000, to help with basic living expenses. Michael DeCourcy of the Sporting News, who I think has the best, most rational take on this and is not falling in line with the other social justice warriors, points out something interesting. Marvin Bagley III, a Duke one and dunner, who is going to be, if not the number one pick in the draft, up there, two, three, four, something like that, looks like he's a hell of a prospect, is signing with Puma for the largest deal since Kevin Durant. DeCourcy tweeted, someone tell me he'd have gotten this deal without that All-America season at Duke, because I could use a good laugh. (laughs) You know what? DeCourcy is 1,000% right. Because if it was just Marvin Bagley III coming out of high school, nobody had seen him before, Puma's not lining up a deal like that. Instead, he played on the biggest stage with the most brand-name program and kicked ass. Therefore, mo' money, mo' money, mo' money. On the golf front, I know people have been tweeting me this. I just want to get it out of the way here. A lot of people don't like Fox Sports using the ball has been hold in the cup noise. Uh, I don't have that handy, I don't think, on my machine. You know what it sounds like. It's like the Birdie King sound effect. Except it's much better than the video game Birdie King, which used 8-bit audio and barely sounded like a real cup and a ball dropping in. People think that that is dubbed in. I got news for you, it's not. Fox Sports bragged about how they put microphones in the cups to get you closer to the action. I think that's fine. I really do. I I love what Fox does with golf. It's different. They're bold in what they do. Their production elements, their little rejoins are absolutely gorgeous. Their use of Pro Tracer is fantastic. I like their new cast of announcers because you get kind of tired of the old cast that you're always used to seeing on NBC and on CBS. And I think they do a great job. And, and I think Joe Buck has... Uh, warmed to the task of calling golf. Let's just put it that way. And one more quick story before we get to Jim Cryan's. Oh, wonderful. Pro Football Talk reports that a grievance over the new anthem policy would likely argue that the NFL failed to engage in good faith bargaining with the NFL Players Association. The NFLPA is going to file a grievance. They may file lawsuits. Who knows what else? I'll just say this one last time, as clearly and as 
firmly as I can. This is bad for the league. Don't think the average fan doesn't see this or hear this or get worn down by this. This is a league of endless grievances. You know what the NFL is becoming less and less of? A league that plays fucking football. Pardon my French. If I was the commissioner, and I would love to be, and I'd be living in several big fat houses at $43 million a year. If I was the commissioner, I would at every turn go to these owners and say, listen, we got to get back to football. We need to be all about football all the time. And yes, I know that the Players Association, we don't have a good relationship with them. We've got to fix that one way or the other. It's just, it's not good for us. We can't be the league of endless grievances. Wearing people out. And with that, let's talk movies and baseball. Durham.com. It's a cool website where they can get a bunch of photos from the shoot. They can get um, excerpts and they can get quotes from uh, all the guys I interviewed. So that's the making of BullDurham.com. And it's actually a pretty cool website. Ron likes it. And uh, so I got his. I just talked to him a little bit ago. He's in Durham. They're doing the 30th anniversary of the film down in, in Durham tonight and tomorrow. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. So kind of cool. He Good goes right for the bars. He always does. He doesn't even stop and collect his two hundred dollars and go he goes right to the bar <laughs> i love he, it he's a great guy though you'd love him uh, I, yeah absolutely well i love the movie and we'll use this as a soft rolling introduction uh on the phone with me today on the zabe cast author jim cryans uh author of the book the church of baseball making bull durham available now on amazon and there's also a website the making of if you want more information Jim, thanks for the time tonight. I've got plenty of questions for you. Are you ready? I am ready, Steve. Thank you. Before I start digging into the questions, there are three movie posters that adorn the walls of my basement, just outside my man cave, just outside the legendary five-hour energy dome where I watch all my sports. And the three, three movie posters that I have are all sports movie related, and they are, in no necessary order, Caddyshack, Jerry Maguire, and yes, Bull Durham. That to me is the holy trinity of sports <laughs> movies, Jim. And so, so Bull Durham really resonates with me, even though I was never a big minor league baseball aficionado. Baseball, while I, I love playing it as a kid and I like it as an adult watching it, it's not my favorite sport. The movie just resonated with me, and I'm sure that's what a lot of people tell you. That's absolutely the case. It's it's 30th anniversary, and the the thing that stunned me more than anything is throughout this process and people I've interviewed and people I've spoken to, women have been attracted to this film or responded to this film as much as men, and I think that in and of itself is rather intriguing. Yeah, I think it is. Well, it's described as a love story that's just set against the backdrop of baseball at the minor league level. Absolutely, and I think that that's that's the thing a lot of people may not understand about Ron. He is uh, he empowers his female characters as he does in uh, Tin Cup 
as he does in White Men Can't Jump. He has a great reverence for women. Uh, his mother was a wonderful person, and he always tells me that she allowed him, she and her father, Rath Shelton, always allowed him the right to fail, and they, they encouraged him to fail in the sense that they wanted him to try. So I think he had a rather nurturing and, and, and wonderful maternal figure, yeah. and I think that plays into all his characters. And forget the literal love triangle for a second between Crash Davis and, and Annie and Nuke Lelouch. At the core of it, I think you'd agree, is that Crash Davis was trying to tell Nuke, you are not loving this great game of baseball properly. You are treating this game of baseball like some two-bit groupie when you should be madly and passionately in love with the game itself. Is that a fair statement? I think that's one of the reasons he was enraged with Nuke is that in the film, Nuke just didn't have the same passion. He wanted the accoutrements that go with the, with the fame, and he wanted the money, and he wanted the blau punk stereo, and he wanted the Porsche. <laughs> but I don't think uh, he really, truly understood uh, what the game is and or was. He may have later in his career, as Ron often says, he may have uh, had a few good outings and blown out his arm and ended up drinking away in Mexico. But I think you're right. I think, uh, you know, Crash was in some ways a hardened individual. And I've had a bit of a, when when I first met Ron, we've had, um, you know, you meet some people sometimes, you're like birds of a feather. You just felt like you've known each other a long time. And I said to him once, I said, Crash was not a very nice guy. And he got a little, uh, a little feathered up with that and said, what do you mean? He, he, he took Nuke. Uh, I said, yeah, but he was told to do that. I don't know that he did that out of the kindness of his heart. And, and I'm, I want to ask you, do you think Crash is a nice guy or was he just doing his job? That's a great question. I think, you know, it could go either way, but he did what was necessary. And I think, I think Crash did what he felt the game was owed. He felt like the game of baseball was owed. Here's a tremendous talent who should be in the major leagues, and he is pissing away his career, so the game is owed me trying to help him reach his full potential. I just call for a curveball. I want to bring heat. Shake him off. Throw it you over. God damn it. Time out. Hey! Why are you shaking me off? Huh? I want to bring the heater to announce my presence with authority. To announce your what? To announce my presence with authority. To announce your fucking presence with authority? This guy's a first ball fastball hitter. He's looking for heat. Oh, yeah? So what? He ain't seen my heat. All right, me. Give me your heat. Why is he always calling me me? I'm the guy driving a Porsche. Fastball. Come on, Nuke. Slow down. Slow down, boy. Slow down. Take your time. What are you doing standing here? I give you a gift. You stand here, show up my picture. Run, dummy! Give me the ball. Well, he really hit the shit out of that one, didn't he? <laughs> he held it like an egg. Yeah, and he scrambled the son of a bitch. Look at that. He hit the fucking ball. 
Gotta get some free steak. <laughs> you having fun yet? Oh, yeah, I'm having a blast. Thanks. Good. God, the sucker teed off in that like he knew I was gonna throw a fastball. He did know. How? I told him. All right, one down. Now. So maybe that's yeah. what it is. Is that is that good? Is that altruistic? I don't know exactly. But as a character, I mean, absolutely fantastic. And of course, so many legendary great scenes. But easily the one where he tips the pitch, and then he hits the home run. Is you know the guy you know he's got the pitch and he's like, come on now, just you know take it and go with it. And when he goes to the mound and a dejected Nuke Lelouch is like. Man, he hit the ball and did crashes. Totally unsympathetic. Like, yeah, he hit the shit out of that thing. That yeah. was that was classic. I mean, that's one of the great all-time movie scenes ever. Well, how much do you know about Ron's background? Well, I know that I, I know that he played minor league baseball and that he was fairly good. He got to the AAA level, so it's the yeah. Con- he played at AAA for five years in the Orioles system, except he was behind Bobby Gritch, Robinson. He couldn't break the lineup. Yeah, I think it takes that level of experience to get all the little details right about the movie and about sports and about teammates and competition and everything else. There's no question. I think anyone who knows baseball knew the nuances of this were real. And this goes for Robert Wool. This goes for Kevin. This goes for Susan. She was uh, amazingly taken in. uh, Can I tell you an anecdote about how she got involved? It's in the book. Yes, please do. Um, she was in uh, Italy at the time. She lived there. She was uh, living there with her daughter, Ava, and uh, somehow she got the script. But And as you know, um, there's studio-approved lists of, of actresses, and basically if they're not on the list, the studio won't have anything to do with them. But Susan was not on the list, and she called Tom Mount, who produced the film, and said, have you cast Andy Savoy? He said, not yet, but we're going to do it very soon. So she flew over on her own dime. And she um, auditioned for Ron and Tom, and Ron loved her, but she's not on the list. So she went over to Orion uh, and met Mike Medivoy, uh, who they'd known each other because they talked a lot of politics. And she went in in a sprayed-on dress and uh, kind of uh, all her wares, if you know what I mean. And um, she basically persuaded Mike calls up Ron and says, I think we should take a look at Susan. He's And Ron, he didn't know he'd read for her already. It's a great idea and hired her on the spot. Now, so it's a nice little anecdote. That is fantastic. Fantastic. Susan Sarandon at the time of the movie was how old? Um, 40. 40 years old, and she was right on the edge. You know, 40 in Hollywood for a, for a female. Oh, she was over the hill. R- right. I mean, that that is, you know, <laughs> as a 50-year-old, I look at 40-year-olds like, you damn. Anybody else in that role, really? No, absolutely not. And she had to convince the studio that she was not too old and not too unsexy for the part. And boy, did she ever do that. Also, yeah, really did. also, this is what I what I was astounded by as I read the forward to Tom Mount's uh, to your book about you know this this movie was that Kevin Costner at the time was not a movie star. He had not yet been in a hit movie. Now the movie No Way Out, which was also huge for him, came out uh, shortly afterwards. But like at the time you cast him, he was a nobody. No, they they had a feeling like, like Ron says he, he was the kind of guy that. You were going to get cheap for the last time, or and they kind of had a feeling. But No Way Out was, he was just right on the cusp, as you said. And so he wasn't a household word yet, but they had a feeling about him. And the numbers came in on uh, No Way Out, and they knew they had a bargain. 
you know, Ron's never told me exactly what he paid for Crash or for Kevin, but uh, you know, my guess is in the million dollar range. And at that time, that was a lot of money. Yeah. And um, so I think that that's what put him over the top. But one one thing I want to tell you about Kevin is that he was so committed to the film. Uh, Ron, basically, there's a lot of BS out there about who got the script and all that, but Ron gave it to Kevin's agent first. And Crash was Kevin as far as Ron was concerned. So here's the interesting part. Um, Every studio said no twice to this film. The the odd thing is Eight Men Out was coming out, was being made at the same time in John Sayles' film. And an interesting thing is Tim Robbins uh, was offered a role in that, but he turned it down for Bull Durham. But what I was getting at was they sat on the couch. Kevin and Ron made the rounds on the, with Kevin on his side, literally on his side, and they kept saying no, no, no. So he had a 30-day commitment from Kevin, and on the 30th day, Stephen, no BS, the 30th day it finally happened because if Ron asked the studios uh, how serious his agents, how serious is his 30-day commitment, they said it's absolutely serious. So providential or whatnot, it wasn't until the 30th day of the the last day Kevin could have stayed with him and they got the deal. Wow. That's sort of like being down to your last strike in a baseball game, <laughs> right? Couldn't be a better example. All right. The uh the, the stunts or at least the, the the baseball action in the movie was right on the edge of okay, I can see they're not the most athletic. Certainly, uh, you know, Nuke Lelouch, I mean that his motion was borderline effeminate throwing a baseball. It was horrible. It was it was, horrible. it was bad, but it worked. Like it was just on the edge of okay. Uh you know, well, of, Crash Davis, though, I mean, you know, Costner, he's athletic enough that he pulled it off, I thought, without a one, one guy said Grady Little was there, and he was uh, coaching them because he had just been the coach of the Bulls that previous season. They said if he were an actor, they would have signed him. He was that good. And they, in the first instance where Ron, they were in uh, Pasadena, and Ron, and Kevin offered to let's go to the batting cage. And Ron wasn't going to ask him to, but so they had a few vodkas, and they went down and put their quarters in like everybody else. And Ron said this guy had a swing that was better than his. And then he said his jaw dropped when he, he went to the left side and he, and he switched hit. He said he just couldn't believe his luck. And Kevin was, Kevin was the real deal. Yeah. What, what part of the movie did you enjoy the most that, that in, in the research and the writing of this book? Maybe something about Bull Durham that you didn't quite fully realize the first few times you saw the movie. Well, that's interesting. As I say in in, in, the, in the book, I don't, my father died that year, and I was all kind of confused, and I didn't uh, really recall whether I saw it in the theater or whether it was on VHS. It's really strange that one of my favorite movies, I can't recall the first time I saw it, but um, I just knew it stayed with me. And, and in terms of favorite scenes, it's really favorite parts. I think I thought it would be a, a real raucous affair on the set, like, you know, everybody giving somebody a hot foot and everybody, uh, you know, doing just pranks and all that. But apparently there wasn't a lot of salacious stuff going on. It was a real, I was surprised to find out it was a very mature set, a very um, happy set. And uh, Susan had her own house and cooked Thanksgiving dinner for all these guys. And she thought it was going to be a bunch of guys scratching their crotches, which of course was true, but she <laughs> she really enjoyed the guys. She thought that... Uh, this was going to be, you know, some kind of a, a macho display. But she said to me that it was one of the best experiences she's ever had on a film. And she was treated with respect and with love. And, you know, it, that's amazing to me that a woman of that caliber could be uh, treated so well. And, uh, 
you know, it's just so interesting, all these little little things I learned from Ron. One thing I have to tell you about, her name is Annie Savoy, of course, and uh, he picked up her name while he was staying at the Savoy Hotel, and he saw it on a matchbox, and he used that name. And for the interesting story for Nuke is he was in uh, South Carolina having dinner at some, you know, the Waffle House or something, and he the guy came up. He says, "Hi, my name is Nuke Lelouch." He says, "What did you say?" He says, "Nuke," and he said, "Ron figured it was probably a not. It was Nook, but it came out as Nuke with his Southern drawl, and he wrote it down. He couldn't believe his luck. He says, "There's my picture, Nuke Lelouch," and I love I love how that stuff comes about. Where and and, he, and as you know, Crash Davis was based on a real player. Yeah, um, Crash. But uh, there's a little anecdote there where. They hadn't. They didn't have his permission, and he showed up on the set one day. And David Lester, the production manager, said, "Crash Davis is here." <laughs> and Ron, uh, yeah, like, uh, and Ron's like, "Oh Jesus, did we get permission?" And um, and all he wanted to know is if he got the girl in the end. And he said, "Yeah, you do." And he went over and took her to Susan, took him over to Susan, introduced him, and it was uh, just a, another magical part of this whole thing. Like, you know, Destiny was not going to be uh, betrayed or denied here. This movie was kind of meant to be. Yeah, what I liked also about the movie, you know, most uh, you go to see a sports movie, a Hollywood sports movie, and you know that the ending is almost always going to be that the team that you're rooting for wins the big game and the protagonist is a hero in the big game itself, yada, 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 happily ever after. Bull Durham ends with a bit of uncertainty and a bit of melancholy about how, yes, Nuke ends up making it to the bigs, but Crash just keeps laboring on and sets a relatively obscure record in the minor leagues that maybe only matters to him. And so there's right. not that cliched ending to the movie, which I actually enjoyed. It be, right. It couldn't be further from a cliche ending. You don't know what you touched on there about cheering for the team. You don't know how the Durham Bulls did. You really don't care. And I think that's the interesting – that's a masterful bit of writing when you think about it. There was no coach saying, you know, let's get them and win one for the Gipper. It was just a uh, – it was about these three people, and uh, you're right. We don't know how any of them ended up. Uh, speaking of which, I might as well I might as well touch base with that. People have been talking about a sequel for a long time. Oh God, no! Was on. God, no! no please, there's, no! There's not. There's not. Thank God. But, but a lot of people want one, and a lot of people talk about it. But Brian said too much time has passed. And Kevin, interestingly, a couple of years ago was really kind of hoping for it, but you don't want to do that. I mean, you don't want uh, – why would you want a remake of a classic? I never understood that. And it's not going to happen, just for the record. But the thing that you probably don't know is it's going to Broadway. Get out of here. So they're going to make it a Broadway the next musical. Year, the, yeah, next year. Boulder wow. on the musical. Wow, that's well, good stuff. Who would have figured, right? Who would have figured? Um, what would a sequel? <laughs> let let now. See now, I I never even entertained the thought of a sequel because it just didn't make sense. But let's no. go ahead, it's map out what that would be. Crash would be a manager, I imagine. And maybe the right. He maybe Annie would. Set. Yeah, maybe Annie would be. Let's say Annie would be a general manager or maybe a team owner of a minor league club. <laughs> All right. Or she'd be teaching at a junior college. One or the <laughs> right. Other. And and and, and then and Nuke Nuke would be serving out his final days of baseball <laughs> as the former major league pitcher who was toiling for one last shot in the big, so he'd be the new crash. Right? Is that well, is that a secret? Writing. You got it all right there. What are you no, waiting for? No, God, no. It, it would it would it would abs- <laughs> no, no, of course not. Um who wrote okay, I mean Shelton wrote, wrote the movie, but uh, who wrote the scene? Who gets credit for the incredible I believe monologue? 
these are the ground rules. I hook up with one guy a season. Usually takes me a couple weeks to pick the guy. That's kind of my own spring training. And, well, you two are the most promising prospects of the season so far. So somebody going to go to bed with somebody or what? Honey, you are a regular nuclear meltdown. You better cool off. <laughs> well, where are you going? After 12 years in the minor leagues, I don't try out. Besides, uh, I don't believe in quantum physics when it comes to matters of the heart. What do you believe in then? Well, I believe in the soul. The cock, the pussy, the small of a woman's back, the hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, that the novels of Susan Sontag are self-indulgent, overrated crap. I believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I believe there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing AstroTurf and the designated hitter. I believe in the sweet spot, softcore pornography, opening your presents Christmas morning rather than Christmas Eve, and I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last three days. Good night. Good night. a lot of the script while driving around researching uh, his locations. You know, didn't have a deal. He would talk into his microphone and his little tape recorder about what he wanted to do. And he told me he wrote that speech not to be in the movie, but to attract actors, to attract uh, for, you know, for pros or whatnot. He felt that that would give the uh, Kevin or whoever read it the, the the understanding that this wasn't a traditional baseball movie, that this wasn't banging the drum slowly, or this wasn't, you know, the natural. This was something that if you couldn't understand what he was saying in that, you know, paragraph or two paragraphs, you wouldn't have gotten the movie. The movie you wouldn't have gotten. So uh, do you agree that it set it apart? Oh, yeah. You knew immediately that you were somewhere else. You weren't in Oz anymore. Right, exactly. Um, or Kansas, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Right. How much time have you spent in Durham, and and how much time have you spent at that minor league level? Well, um, I had written a film. Uh, you, do you remember Bruce Fleming? Yes, Umpire. The Umpire. I did a documentary on him a few years ago, so I was always enamored with the minor leagues and what these poor bastards went through. You know, making fifteen dollars a week and and just living off of hot dogs at the ballpark, and then. I, I think that my relationship with the miners grew in, in understanding, you know, what Ron had gone through with them, and uh, and and I think that there's a certain romance there. I'm sorry, I'm deviating from your question. No, no, that's okay, that's okay. But yeah, you obviously. What was the question again? The que- no, the, here. What... no, the question was how much time have you spent in the miners? And okay, obviously, the answer so... is quite a bit because you wrote. A... Well, no, I also want to say. Can I tell you briefly how I got Ron? I never expected to get him, okay? I'd read the book, Making of Major League, which we all like Major League. It was a great film, but I figured, why hadn't anybody done it on this? And so uh, how the hell did you get in touch with Ron Shelton? You know, I really didn't know how. And I was going to do a documentary saying, uh, finding Ron Shelton. What do you go stand out on Hollywood Boulevard with a big sign? Does anybody know Ron Shelton? And then, so I looked up an article that was someone had written on him, and I got in touch with that publication. They gave me the writer, and he gave me an email, and I had him in two emails. It was really weird. And he wrote back and said, uh, what are you doing with this? Who is this for? And he says, now you got my email. So now, 11 months later, and, you know, you hesitate to say friendship, but I was just busting his ball tonight about something, and uh, it's just such a great relationship that I have with him that, you know, that's probably the highlight of my 
experience with this, working with him for 11 months, going out to L.A., spending a few days with him, and just, you know, probably a thousand emails, you know, 20 phone calls. And if you had to wave a magic wand and say, who would you like to hang with? He would have been one of the guys. Yeah. So I think, you know, for me, it's it sounds corny, but, you know, he's just kind of one of those guys I always wanted to talk to and, you know, spend time with it. I never thought it was possible, Steve. I never thought that would happen. What is the vitality of the Carolina League these days, and how much has the Durham Bulls franchise benefited from the movie? There are people that will tell you two things. Some will say, I talked to George Hobble, who is the um, Capital Broadcasting owns them now, and he said that, you know, it's it's single-handedly, uh, and the Toledo Mud Hens are responsible for um, what minor leagues are today. And, you know, Bill Murray's got a couple teams and all this. And uh, I think that some will say that that movie um, reignited. Tom Mount said in the time the movie was made, you could have purchased a minor league team for the same cost as your light bill. But now <laughs> it's it's a big it's a big business now. And, uh, I mean, you'd, have to, you'd be hard-pressed to say that Bull Durham wasn't part of that. Yeah. What are the players like in the minors? Because here they are toiling away, hoping to make it to the majors, but only a tiny fraction of them even do. I know. That's part of the heartbreaking thing I talk about in the book, that here are these guys with a swagger. You know, I've covered the Brewers for 20-some-odd years, and, you know, you look at these guys, the confidence in their swagger, and you see that in the in the minor league guys, but only 2% of those guys are ever going to see the show. And and in some ways, it's it's heartbreaking and devastating. But the other end of the spectrum, they had a better life than I did. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna cry too long for them. But uh, you know, it, Moneyball touched on that a little bit about some guys have and some don't. But I think there is a tragedy to the minor leagues when you have such gifted players. But you could say that about anything, though. I asked Ron, you know, if he could be a, a Hall of Fame uh, baseball player or. or uh, Academy Award-winning director, which would he take? And he said, oh, i do the movies because, you know, there's no time clock on you when you're in the, in the movies. And Whenever you step on the field, you're one day closer to um, ending your career. And I think that was a nice metaphor that, uh, you know, in movies he can go on until his last breath. And I think that it was really interesting to find out a guy that was that close to baseball and walked away, like when Crash gets cut, you know. And as I say in the book, he... Ron walked away from the dream, and not a lot of guys do that. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think not only are ball players every day they're out on the field one day closer to the end of their career, they know at some point they're one day closer, and a certain panic must set in. So there is that desperation. A couple scenes just to ask the inspiration for and just how true yeah. or how accurate they may have been. The forced... right, Go down the list. I, I got it all. Go down all the right. list. All right. The forced rainout scene with the sprinklers. True, not true, it fudged. Happened. It happened. It okay. happened. Absolutely. Ron did it in uh, Texas. And, uh, you know, it sounds like a lot of BS, but he did it. And uh, he said the tedium involved sometimes. Uh, you just had to do something. So that's real. Okay. Uh, sexual abstinence that fuels hitting streaks. True or, or uh... winning streaks. True or not true. <laughs> You know what, um, I, I don't, well, quickly, I'd say uh, I've never been through it enough to really give you an answer, but that was based on a Greek play where uh, it's called Lysisostra, where she withheld sex from the troops so that uh, they would do her bidding. So okay. that, that's what it was based on. That's how Ron pitched the movie to Tom Mount. What's your next one? All right, pitcher who hits the mascot, beans the mascot. <laughs> do you ever hear of Steve Dalkowski? No. Steve Dalkowski was the um, 
the model for Nuke. And he's a guy, and you got to look him up after this. Uh, he threw, they say, and Ron swears to this, that he threw harder than anybody. I mean, Nolan Ryan, all of them. And here's a little anecdote. He was a drunk, so he threw about, you know, 107 or whatever he threw, but he couldn't put it together with consistency because he drank all the time. Now, this is true. Ted Williams got in the box in spring training just to go up against him. And this guy threw a pitch so fast and so hot that it came in towards his head and Ted Williams turned away and said, I'm not staying in that box. Wow. This guy would have killed him. And this guy, but he, he's one of those guys that you never know about. You didn't know any hit mascots. I think he, he technically, they said he put a ball through a piece of wood. He's just some, you got to look him up. Steve Delkowski. Right. And, uh, he, he's real. He's, he's for real. Cross-dressing pitchers that wear women's <laughs> undergarments. I do it, but I don't know about anybody else. <laughs> I think, uh, no, that one I never really got an answer on, I don't think. I never really pressed that one. But the um, the mound scene, can I tell you about the mound scene really quick? Yeah. Um, what happened was uh, Robert Wall's wife had been at a wedding recently. So Ron, uh, Robert Wall gave the worst audition in Humankind, and they both agreed that it was the worst, and Ron hired him because he knew what he had. So Ron works off the script and says, all right, you work off the book. And then he said, all right, Robert, give me one. So the second take or third take, so Robert went up there. His his initial lines weren't – that was not in the script. But what he came up with, he just ad-libbed, and he was Robert Wool. And that's, that's where the gems come from. And strangely enough, Steve, the producers wanted – to cut that scene and what? mom was like you gotta be yeah but it's amazing where he recommends scene. candlesticks as a wedding yeah, gift because they said uh it just didn't it didn't make sense and ron said the whole movie doesn't make sense <laughs> and then he said uh, <laughs> so they went and tested it and the audience said that was their favorite scene good stuff so they tell these jerk offs or producers they don't really know squat half the time and the love scene they weren't going to shoot that the whole oh, funky my. love scene with the candles. And, oh, my God. You know, producers, most of them don't know what they're doing. It's that simple. <laughs> all right, and, you know, so. They know the money, yeah. but they don't know creativity necessarily. So because all the studios said no twice, when you finally got Orion to give it the green light, there was a lot of stipulations, and uh, and you guys had to pretty much back and guarantee the movie itself. It then went on to be a huge hit. Did those yeah. people that put their money up for it make a huge windfall when it was all said and done? Yeah, there was money made. Um, it made $50 million, which is about $100 million to today's dollars, and nobody thought that was possible. I mean, Ron said he watched he, uh, the, the reviews were just one after another, glowing, glowing, glowing. He said he, he knew he had something, and then um, by midsummer. They knew they were doing okay. They knew they had something. So yeah, they, they all did quite well. <laughs> does it kick if off? That's what you meant. Does it kick off money now residually? Oh, I never really talked about it, but hell, I don't know. Um, that's out of, that's above my pay grade. I have no idea what it's doing in terms of consistency. But I, Ron's doing okay, if that's what you mean. No, I know he's doing okay. He's, he's made a lot of great films. What, where does <laughs> it rank you being a baseball guy and and covering baseball for you? Because I've seen, all, I think, almost all of the major baseball movies from Field of Dreams to The Natural to yeah, Major right. League, et cetera, et cetera. And Bull Durham's my favorite by far. Where where does this movie rank for you? Well, you know, really, without just blowing smoke up my, you know what, I, I really think it is my favorite baseball film. I mean, I can't, 
I can't, you know, I like Mr. 3000. I like Major League for what it was. I love banging the drum slowly. I love, you know, for the love of the game is one of my favorites, I have to say. And really? If, if any, in baseball. Okay. And, but, I mean, I love Slapshot. I'm a Slapshot, crazy Slapshot guy. If I caddy, I mean, you go into golf, Tin Cup was right, funny. But, but for, for love of the game with Costner as the pitcher was a very serious movie. Yeah, I, for me, it worked. And the funny thing about Ron wrote a script called Player to Be Named Later, believe it or not, long time ago. And uh, he said he, the interesting thing about that was he said it had to be between a pitcher and catcher because they're communicado all game. And, uh, you know, you take that for granted. But when you think about it, that was the way to go as a writer. You had to have two characters that interacted. You know, a right fielder doesn't interact with a pitcher that much. You know, I think that that was interesting to me, that Ron Ron writes what he knows. And I think that any decent writer, any decent filmmaker, you can tell when it's coming from the heart. And I think every single person that read that script felt that way. It sounds like a lot of BS and a lot of smoke, but every single person from Costner to Sarandon to Robbins, they just thanked Ron for, for doing this film, as corny as that sounds. One of the things one of the studios said to you was, nobody wants to see a baseball movie. And I understand the thinking from studio heads to go, it's a, it's still a niche thing, even though baseball is America's pastime. Right. What I was stunned by is how on earth did Moneyball do so well when it was about such an arcane, nuanced, nerdy baseball concept? I guess Brad Pitt, it really is that much of a draw, right? I have to tell you, Steve, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. I read the book and I liked it, but... You know, as much as I'm not really crazy about that other guy um, who played the, uh, you know, I'm talking about the super bad kid. Yeah, Jonah Hill. Yeah, he's fine. But, I mean, Brad pulled that off. I thought the new, and you know who was the unsung hero of that film was Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yes. I think, you know, he stole that thing as, as, as Art, was it Art Howe? Yeah, I mean, yep, just yep, yep. stole that. But but I think that um, it's a good question about Moneyball. I watch that periodically. You know, every so often I like to put it in, and it's something about humanity and hope. And when that player, uh, remember the player in the film that said that he didn't think he would make the first base and he had hit a home run, I just found stuff like that to be, that it resonated with me. And how they passed on Kevin Euclid and stuff like that. That film touched on a lot of interesting points. But, and no, all BS aside, Bull Durham is my favorite baseball movie sports film but slap shots up there too i'm not gonna if somebody hadn't written a book on slap shot i would have because that's <laughs> to me it's right up there and i just want to say i'm uh i'm gonna do one on shawshank shawshank redemption's Ooh, my next one very nice and i gotta tell you briefly i'm not mad at the zucker brothers but i was doing one on airplane and um i've been working with the zucker brothers for a few weeks and they put the brakes on it right now for whatever reason but i kareem called me yesterday and we spent about 20 minutes on the phone to get that book together. So say a prayer if you're a praying man. Let me get that book into the can, too, and we'll talk again. But, uh, yeah, I think um, a lot of these books are coming down the pike now, and I hope you like Shawshank because I think that's going to be my next one. Oh, that's going to be a home run. The book is called The Church of Baseball, Making Bull Durham. Author is Jim Cryans, spelled C-R-Y-N-S. It's available now on Amazon. Go get it. The Church of Baseball, Making Bull Durham. Great summer reading. And if you want to check out the website, themakingofbulldurham.com. A lot of good images and other stuff from the movie there. Jim, great job, man. I really enjoyed talking to you about a great movie. Steve, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. All right, finally, we'll end with this today. Headline, planned 
end daylight savings time inches closer in California. Boo! California voters may get a chance to weigh in on daylight savings time come November. Uh, the Senate on Thursday in California asked approved a proposal to ask voters to repeal the 70-year-old initiative that set a biannual clock change in California and gave lawmakers the power to adjust the time with two-thirds of a vote. However, foes of daylight savings time clock switches should not celebrate just yet. The state cannot officially end daylight savings time until next year at the earliest, and the process is best described as complicated and would require a second bill and federal approval. I actually Google searched pros and cons of daylight savings. I understand those who want to end it. They say it's a hassle. It's stupid. You're not getting any more daylight. You're just shifting the daylight. And some people say that, you know, they're morning people anyway, so they wouldn't mind it being light in the morning. The arguments against it, and this is where I firmly end, is that there is nothing better once the warm weather comes wherever you live than having it stay daylight as deep into the evening as possible. Seven, eight, even nine o'clock at night to go out after work and get in a round of golf, to go play a softball game, to be in the park with your dog, to go on a hike, to go out to a restaurant in the beautiful evening weather and have it be light and be able to eat outside, al fresca, as they say. That's why we do daylight savings time. We try to maximize those hours. Yeah, but I like to get up early and play golf before I go to work. Eh, Well, you know what? Your schedule's in the minority, pal. In the minority, so shut up and just go along with the program. Oh, it's such a hassle. Really? It's that much of it. Twice a year, i got to change the time, and I forget, and then I'm late for a meeting. Really? It's that hard, huh? It's, it's throwing you that much for a loop. I will defend daylight savings time from now until the end of time. Because for me, there is nothing better than these golden hours in the warm weather months that occur in the evening, six, seven, eight, nine o'clock at the deepest at the summer solstice. So to all you trying to repeal daylight savings time, die. Just, just die, as Tony Kornheiser would say. Well, okay, don't die, but I hope it doesn't pass. Of course, I don't live in California. Number of states I know. Don't email me. Already don't do it. Indiana apparently is one of them. Uh, Arizona is another where it's so damn hot that the last thing they want is more daylight at the end of the day. And I get that. That's fine. Leave it up to the states. But for me, I am a daylight savings guy through and through. That'll be a wrap for today. You know the drill. Tell two friends. Hit up that Reddit thread or other message board about how great this podcast is. Leave a positive review or rating or both. Download, subscribe at all the major outlets like iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, and more. And always remember this Father's Day weekend, it's okay to give Dad a six-pack of cold beer and a long nap in front of the TV. It is as welcome as any other gift. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Lay back, cause it's the summertime.